I'm G4, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading, the exuberantly opinionated guide to the basic techniques of the world's greatest hobby. In this episode, I'll give you a history of railroads in southern New England. time I give you all an update, as a lot has happened, uh, both personally and model railroadingly, uh, in a very long time. I have somewhat been very remiss about this podcast, and for that I am extremely apologetic, coming out, what, only a couple episodes a year at best. Um, a lot of that is graduate school, I'm an early career scientist, give me a break, there is really not much more than I can do about that, so who knows, someday in maybe, eh, I give it 40, 50 years, I might have a regular release schedule. Obviously, as you could probably interpolate from the previous episode's housekeeping segment, um, I have gone through a lot of uh, shifts uh, in terms of how I view model railroading. Um, long story short, I've danced around this a lot, uh, and I will continue to do so. Maybe someday I will give you all uh, a, a complete atlas of everything that's happened. I took uh, several semesters off from my own model railroading projects. I got I got so close to finishing the model railroad. I was starting on structures. Uh, trains were running, not great, but they were running. Uh, and I was working on fixing all of that, optimizing it, uh, I I installing keep alives even. Um, and then I well kind of wrote episode fourteen, fell in love with the concept of modeling modern stuff and. Well, um, I'm now, I literally just minutes ago came upstairs from uh, building a second layout. Do I have room for two layouts? No. Will I be able to maintain two layouts? Probably not. Which one I will choose to maintain and work on? I have no idea. Um, what will happen when I finally move and actually uh, have a job in a big city or possibly a faraway place? I don't know. How will I move the layout with me? Yeah, I'll figure that out when I come to it. Um, but a lot of this is almost kind of ancillary. If I don't ever get to finishing a model railroad, that's, for me anyway, no longer really the point. It's more that I have um, identified something. I've created something completely novel that I am certain uh, everybody else would love to hear about. So, the third presentation that I alluded to in the previous housekeeping segment, it's, um, well, I, uh, ahead of schedule, no less, I debuted it, uh, at the Rails to Pittsburgh Regional Convention, um, uh, just this past weekend, at least at the time of recording. Maybe I can jump in here and say how long it's been between recording and actual editing. <sighs> Literal months. It's the middle of June right now. 
Well, hello, both me's from the past. It seems that things got even worse. Uh, in late August, my computer had a hard drive meltdown. Um, as it turned out, I did in fact actually give all three presentations at the national convention as well, to critical acclaim, if I do say so myself. Um, but more sadly, I had to completely re-edit this entire episode all over again. It was devastating. So yeah, at least I have a solid excuse this time for taking so bloody long to edit the damn thing. Sorry. Anyway, back to the show. And at least for now, I'm so happy with what I've been able to put together in terms of an idea that the actual building of my own model railroad, at least for the intermediate time period, that itself is almost um, kind of ancillary. I would love to. I want to run trains. I really would love to model the stuff that I, I came up with an idea for, but the idea itself is more important, and spreading the idea far and wide is more important. On another level, um, I have been uh, doing a lot of uh, uh, events recently with the a Modeler's Life podcast. Shout out to Lionel Strang and the entire crew. You guys have completely revolutionized the hobby in a way that I really only could dream uh, to do with this tiny little endeavor. Um, but so far, and completely unknowingly, uh, I think two of the people in that group uh, recently came to me saying, oh yeah, by the way, I love your podcast. And I was like, wait, people actually listen to that? <laughs> um... Yeah, so uh, I now am realizing that this is actually a potentially useful or important thing that I should maybe get a little bit more serious about. Um, it would be fun. Uh, I am, what, uh, I, I, a couple episodes, maybe a dozen uh, away from finishing the basics of model railroading, and then from that point, well, I can take this wherever I want. And that kind of leads into the third part. Um, this... This is an interesting part. This is this is an interesting idea. I do not know where this will go. I do not know how this will go. But kind of connecting the idea that I made the third presentation on uh, for Rails to Pittsburgh, which I will be presenting uh, in Texas, and I, I think I might have to get serious about presenting it at a bunch of other regionals. Um, no, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, the first uh, presentation that I uh, gave for NMRAX, um, they released it uh, in a single standalone YouTube video. I gave the second presentation, NMRAX, uh, in March, so my idea now uh, is that I will present the third part for NMRAX, and then hopefully I will have three standalone videos of all three of these clinics that people could view at any point in time. When that happens, I will definitely make a separate segment on the website where you can uh, go and watch all three of these videos, so you won't have to go digging through the NMRA archives, and you can see all of the crazy stuff that I'm talking about, and hopefully be inspired with all of my uh, crazy ideas. Whoopsie doozles, already did that. You can check it out on the website under the section of clinics. You can see all three parts there for your uh, entertainment. The third part I describe as less a how-to clinic and more a stand-up comedy routine. Altogether, all three presentations have over 350 slides of material and all three documents are over two gigabytes in size. Not the video recordings, the raw PowerPoint files. Clinics aside, uh, I think that I can turn this podcast into 
a format where I can at least talk about these crazy ideas. I don't necessarily have to give only beginner information per se, like this is how you glue two pieces of plastic together. Uh, instead, one of the things that has uh, most thoroughly fascinated me throughout my entire life, really, uh, has been the theory of model railroading. Not just the um, uh, rote model making of this is how you do that, put this together like a kitchen recipe, and then shake all of the ground foam in a container together and pour it out on the layout, and lo and behold, you have trains. Instead, the thing that I've always been so much more fascinated by is the broader level thinking of how do we make trains move through a room that makes it look like it's um, moving through a space that is not a room. Uh, how do we turn these tiny models into things that uh, look like they operate like the real thing? Not just that they look like it in a picture, but that they also move like it as well. So, Obviously, this is very far off. Uh, based on my current episode release schedule, this may or may uh, not start happening during my retirement. But learning that other people do listen to this podcast, not just like random other people on the internet that are represented by a digit in a subscriber count, instead, friends saying that they like the podcast independently of me bringing it up, that makes me realize that this is a forum which I have a really great opportunity to at least spread some of these ideas, um, and probably more importantly, just have fun for it. Um, I obviously put an exorbitant amount of production into each episode, um, putting together a, a, a crazy detailed scripts for everything, uh, thinking through all of the techniques, going back through back issues of magazines and collecting ideas uh, on all of uh, uh, the, the specific subjects that I'm talking about. Um, and I always did this more from a, the perspective of a hobby service. I like trains, I have benefited from all of the model trains that are available, and so therefore I should pay it forward uh, and make it easier for people in the next generation of modelers to get into it, and then hopefully they can like trains, uh, and they can benefit from all of the models that exist and carry on the cycle. But now I'm realizing that at least in terms of episode number of basic beginner stuff, I am closer to the end than the beginning, and even though my release schedule is very lackadaisical, if not contemptible, I at least can, when all of that basic beginner stuff is done, turn this podcast around into something that I also enjoy for myself. And so kind of as a um, test of where this will go, I, I, I wrote the script for this a very long time ago. I had a particularly um, intriguing evening in February in which I just basically wrote a manifesto. Obviously, you all know my uh, political uh, persuasion. Uh, it leans correctly versus incorrectly. Um, and an important thing going on, at least in the discourse of younger generations these days, uh, is that choosing to make something politically neutral is also a political choice. And I think that we as a hobby can do a lot of good, not just for uh, minoritized groups, but also for the hobby. I wrote the script originally thinking that it would be for a completely separate podcast feed. But again, hearing from said friends that they enjoy this particular podcast, I think I may as well merge it together, make another mini-series. You'll hear a lot about it. Um, 
Hopefully, it will be the next episode I release. We shall see where that goes and how that works out. Um, but I thought you all were owed some sort of a more honest discussion coming from me about how I am organizing this podcast, about where I have been, what I have been thinking, uh, and what it might mean for you all. Uh, again, I always just thought that this was the thing for me, and that this was more of an act of service of paying it forward. Now I realize that it's a bit bigger than I originally intended, and I now have to think about this stuff more seriously. And I thought that I would give you guys this much more honest discussion of what I was thinking. Uh, normally, when I have included housekeeping notes at the beginning of episodes, I have, much like the episodes themselves, scripted them out uh, judiciously and thoroughly. Uh, in part because it just simply makes editing easier. I am seriously at the point of trying to find a different editing software because it's so laborious uh, in GarageBand, at least as far as podcasting goes. And that was kind of just a legacy choice. I started with that, and so I kept going with that uh, for all of these years. But instead of giving you guys a, uh, a meticulously scripted uh, update, I thought that you all were owed... Uh, a, a more heartfelt uh, and spontaneous discussion, even though it will come at uh, an egregious cost for myself later when it comes to editing out all of the false takes, false thoughts, and far too many ums and uhs and is. As to where this goes over the next few years, well, frankly, I have no idea. But if you've made it this far, I think you'll continue to enjoy where I end up going, possibly more so. I have a few really interesting ideas that you, you might find uh, most intriguing. Anyway, I owe you all an episode. The biggest name in New England railroading by far is the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. Possibly the poster child of railroad system consolidation, the New Haven formed as the result of an 1872 merger between two regionals. The Hartford and New Haven had been in operation since 1839, providing all-weather service up the river to Springfield, and had a history of cooperation with its decade-younger sister, the New York and New Haven, so a merger was always the logical outcome. When it did happen, though, the New Haven also got its hands on a line all the way to New London, Connecticut. Originally, the shoreline, as it was called, was thought impossible because the sheer number of navigable river crossings necessitating an incredible number of bridges. The original preferred route for New York to Boston traffic was along Long Island to Greenport, thence by ferry to eastern Connecticut, bypassing the bridges. However, with time and technological advances, the New Haven system eventually pushed its way across many river mouths and miles of Rhode Island swamps up to Boston, providing a one-seat ride. As was practice with the time, the New Haven expanded by acquisition, and had half of all Connecticut railroads south of Boston under its control by the 1880s. A decade later, it came under the influence of James Pierpont Morgan and Charles Sanger Mellon, whom then proceeded to wantonly gobble up essentially every railroad or transportation company left from Connecticut to Cape Cod. I'm not kidding. Streetcars, interurbans, and steamships included, leading to an effective monopoly on all transport between New York, Boston, and intermediate points by the 19-teens. 
Incidentally, though, this left the company financially hobbled for much of its life. Not only was the New Haven long saddled with debt and creditors, as with the Boston and Maine, it was left with a surplus of branch lines saturating the region. Notable regionals absorbed include the Central New England and Housatonic Railroads. In the 1950s, an attempted turnaround brought about a rebranding with modern logos and paint schemes in bold, black, red, white, and orange. These vibrant colors are recognizable to many hobbyists and left a mark on the region which survives to this day in similar schemes chosen for all of Connecticut's modern commuter rail operations. Although the company ceased to exist in 1968, its spirit, crushing debt, lived on. In that year, alongside a bunch of other struggling Northeastern railroads, the New York Central and Pennsylvania Railroads decided to merge and trim their so-called branch line empires. However, as a condition of the merger, the ICC required the resultant Penn Central to also adopt the New Haven as well, which had been in bankruptcy for who knows how long at that point, the thinking being that these larger trans-Appalachian roads would always have a sustaining income from interregional and mountain-crossing traffic so they could prop up the smaller intra regional line, which merely coasted through the suburbs, so that white people could still keep their 9-to-5 city-to-suburb shuttle system. The thinking was wrong. Many people directly attribute the Penn Central bankruptcy to the New Haven. While its corporate finances may have always been a failure, its proximity to so many major cities and concomitant legendary passenger operations along one of the most densely traveled stretches of track in the country make the New Haven inseparable from passenger railroading iconography. Starting from the equally iconic Grand Central Terminal in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, a single quad or more track mainline ran northeast to Norwalk, Connecticut, then branched into largely three main sections. One region ran north and west of Danbury, backtracking into New York and going as far north as Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The next densely covered central Connecticut, with at least four major north-south routes heading from New Haven to or around Hartford, then continuing north to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield, Mass. And the final territory controlled by the New Haven is basically everywhere south and southeast of Boston, with multiple lines east to Worcester, Providence, Fall River, Plymouth, and New Bedford, and one line snaking all the way along Cape Cod to Provincetown. Its main line, of course, ran along the shore of Long Island Sound from Grand Central to New Haven, New London, Providence, and Boston. The shoreline saw, on its least busy stretch, 48 passenger trains and 18 freight trains a day. Boston South Station served 216 passenger and 20 freight trains a day, and New York got 24 freight trains and a whopping 232 passenger trains split between Grand Central and Penn. On a typical day, the New Haven saw 199 freight trains and 516 passenger trains on a system that would be, by today's standards, a medium-small-sized regional railroad. Notable passenger trains on this hyperdense operation included the famed Yankee Clipper and Merchants Limited, simultaneously departing New York and Boston daily at 13 and 1700. Composed only of dining, parlor, and lounge cars, no coaches, these premier luxury trains were rolling parties for the well-to-do. Also prominent was the Federal, a through-routed train from the Pennsylvania Railroad running daily from Washington City to Boston, and other trains through running Penn Station in cooperation with the Penzi included the Colonial, Patriot, Senator, and William Penn. 
Several more, like the Bar Harbor Express and East Wind, continued through Boston and on into Maine. Additionally, trains running north but not through Boston included the Bankers to Springfield, the Berkshire to Pittsfield, the Ambassador to Montreal, the Connecticut Yankee to Quebec City, and the Valley Express to White River Junction. The New York to Boston corridor also had several overnight trains, allowing you to go to sleep in one city and wake up in the other, and the list of notable New Haven passenger trains is rounded out by several summer specials, like the Sand Dune or the Neptune, leaving either Boston or New York respectively, but traveling direct to Woods Hole or Hyannis, delivering tourists to Cape Cod. The New Haven was also prominent for its passenger innovation, having, of course, its electrification, a rarity in the US, but also its early adoption of rail diesel cars, and its attempts at lightweight, Talgo-style, passively tilting married train sets, such as the Daniel Webster, John Quincy Adams, or UAC Turbo Train. Finally, the New Haven was also a major player in daily commuter trains in New York, and had a monopoly on commuter routes south of Boston. The 1976 government rescue of Penn Central into Conrail came with an interesting ramification. The former Pennsylvania Railroad line from Washington to New York and the former New Haven line from New York to Boston were transferred in ownership to Amtrak. For the first time in American history, a stretch of major intercity track was owned by a purely passenger-carrying entity. Thus became the Northeast Corridor. Originally, electrification extended only to New Haven and through service was accompanied by a locomotive or power change. However, Interestingly, and a story I did not know of until quite recently, electrification was extended to Boston in the 1990s and came with the introduction of America's first true high-speed train, the Acela. For those interested in learning more, I strongly recommend the book Railroads of Rhode Island by Frank Heppner. It both tells the story of how quiet little museum docents uniquely precipitated the push for passenger service and explains the phenomenon of, quote, swampas, unquote. Anyway, the rest of the New Haven's lines were all owned by Conrail, which decided to spin off many to short-line companies. Those lines which remained were divulged to CSX in 1999. One of the New Haven's later acquisitions was the Central New England Railroad in 1927. Although it was never as financially successful as the New Haven, which, with the New Haven's poor financial state, is quite an accomplishment, largely due to its rural northern route, the CNE did have one claim to fame, the Hudson River Bridge in Poughkeepsie, New York. Running from Hartford and Springfield westward to Poughkeepsie and thencely Maybrook, New York, and having a cycloramic corporate history, the central New England's primary purpose was as a bridge line, taking traffic along less congested bypasses through a railroad back door to northeastern communities. As part of this, though, was the need to cross the Hudson River Palisades, which very, very few other railroads have to this day managed to accomplish. The majority of Trans-Hudson traffic was done through impressive car float operations in the New York area. The New York Central, Erie, Pennsylvania, Central Railroad of New Jersey, and countless others actually ran impressive fleets of tugboats and barges, complemented by fleets of passenger ferries for the motile cargo. The concept was simple, deliver traffic to any one of the ginormous yards in Hoboken or Jersey City, load the freight cars onto barges with railroad tracks, and float them across the river to Brooklyn for switching to factory buildings. However, this was obviously an incomplete system. If a car is coming from or going to a factory or warehouse or whatever, it would already need switching at its final destination, so what's one more step putting it onto and off of a car float? 
But what if it was a through car coming from or going to not New York, but New Haven, New London, or Boston? It would be inefficient to take the car to Brooklyn, switch it out of a train and onto a car float, float the car across the congested Hudson, and then switch it back into a train for further intercity travel, only to switch it again to its final destination. It was thus that bridge crossings of the Hudson River were in extreme demand. Several railroads crossed the Upper Hudson, namely the Boston and Albany, just barely south of its latter namesake, but what eventually became the central New England had the furthest south railroad crossing of the Hudson, about halfway between Albany and New York. For years, proposals to span the Lower Hudson had been discussed on and off to varying success, but in 1871, the Poughkeepsie Bridge Company was chartered to settle the matter. Opening a whopping 18 years later, a few days before the end of 1888, was the Poughkeepsie Bridge. Defined more by favorable terrain and less by surrounding railroads, it seemed that the PBC built the bridge without actually thought to which railroad would run across it, which necessitated a corporate foo battle of railroads running parallel to existing charters on either side of the bridge approaches in the few years leading up to bridge completion. Finally, a year after the bridge opening in 1889, the bridge approach lines were merged into the Central New England and Western Railroad, which itself leased nearby lines to finally complete a route of meaningful length from Central Connecticut and Massachusetts to south-central New York. The Poughkeepsie Bridge would remain the only fixed span across the Hudson between New York and Albany for 40 years. Just a few years later, the CNE&W was purchased by the Reading Railroad as a route into New England, but the Reading later defaulted and lost its control, leading to the reorganization of the CNE&W into the CNE. Intriguingly, despite the failed Reading takeover and its later acquisition by the New Haven, corporate relations always remained cordial, and the CNE later became the easternmost part of the alphabet system in 1931, which included the Reading. So named because of its component railroads, the NYC and St. L, W and LE, P and WV, WM, RDG, CNJ, L and HR, and NYNH and H, hence its name, the Alphabet Route provided a loose connection of a bunch of other smaller railroads to form their own pseudo-transcontinental route at the behest of George J. Gould, heir to J. Gould. While a true transcon was never realized because of the Great Depression, the Alphabet Route did serve a regional backbone and hosted some of the Alphabet Route's famous Alpha Jets, fast freight services and trailer trains in the 1960s and 70s. Anyway, after the attempted takeover by the Reading, the New Haven acquired financial control in 1903, largely for the strategic bridge. However, the CNA branding and operations remained separate until it was fully integrated into the New Haven system in 1927. Despite acquiring many connecting branch roads to nearby cities, auspiciously offering more destinations and traffics, the CNE's route through largely rural northern Connecticut remained a thorn in its side, and branches began pruning in the 19-teens towards an ultimate abandonment in 1974. Closely tied with the fate of the CNE was the Lehigh and Hudson River Railroad, which connected with the CNE's western terminus near Maybrook, New York. Formed from an 1881 merger between three companies, the L&HR extended across northern New Jersey from the industrial and coal mining gateway of Easton, Pennsylvania, up and over the New York metropolitan sprawl to its connections with the CNE. This thusly allowed the CNE and L&HR a premier status as a bridge route, pun intended. Further corroborating its singular purpose, the L&HR had only a single branch to some zinc mines. 
One of the LNHR's main commodities was anthracite coal. Numerous railroads, to be discussed next time, innervated northeastern Pennsylvania's anthracite region, known for its titular clean and hot-burning coal. Because it was predominantly carbon and therefore low soot, it was therefore favored for home heating in the densely populated East Coast. Since all rail lines in and around New York were congested, diverting this slow, heavy bulk traffic around the region to points east made perfect sense. However, as with all one-trick pikes, bankruptcy plagued the LNHR come the decline of coal in the 1950s. The CNE, by this point part of the New Haven, was merged into Penn Central. Then, with the Penn Central bankruptcy, the LNHR joined it as the smallest road to merge into Conrail in 1976. Today, these two unique but flawed railroads remain largely forgotten but for that magnificent bridge over Poughkeepsie, which is now the walkway over the Hudson, the longest pedestrian bridge in the world until surpassed in 2016 by a Colorado wildlife sanctuary. While we're over here, in honorary South Far Western New England, but hey, so long as the Case Western Reserve exists, I feel justified in blurring these boundaries, it makes sense to talk about the confusingly and similarly named Lehigh and New England Railroad. The 1871 charter of the Poughkeepsie Bridge Company caused a flurry of activity and hopes of an interior airline to Harrisburg and beyond. While none of it came to pass, the Pennsylvania division of the attempted airline, after much drama, reorganized into the Lehigh in New England in 1895. The L&NE, much like its slightly more southeasterly cousin, the L&HR, also connected with the CNE and served as a bridge line up and over New York City. The difference is that, while the LNHR was just a straight line, mostly in New Jersey from Pennsylvania connections to New York and Connecticut connections, the L&NE was a more well-rounded operation, with a little track in New York going to the CNE, a little bit more in New Jersey, but more than half of its length in Pennsylvania actually serving the mines of its lifeblood. In fact, to this end, the L&NE was acquired in 1904 by the Lehigh Coal and Navigation Company, forming a monopoly system. To my knowledge, this mine railroad arrangement occurred only once more, with the Reading Railroad also of Pennsylvania. Although some lauded for bringing economic development to the region, it is generally recognized now as an incredibly extractive and abusive system. While not purely the purview of mine railroad monopolies, it certainly was exemplified by them. The massive influx of immigrants to America from the 1870s to the 1920s often landed with moderate experience and no fluency, so by necessity they settled in jobs requiring little beyond manual labor and lived in communities of similar immigrants to help them acclimate to the language and culture. Many of these were in mine or mine railroad controlled so-called patch towns or company towns. The company owned the house you rented, you got your paycheck from the company in form of scrip, which could only be used at the company store, if you wanted it in usable cash, you would get a deduction applied to your wages, and sometimes the patch towns were so rural and poorly equipped that you'd have to walk for miles through the woods to get to a necessary store. Wives worked just as hard growing food in the garden as their husbands did in the mines just to feed and provide for their family. Often, these extractive tour de forces on the landscape were always meant to be temporary. The companies were there until the coal seemed dried up, and the immigrants were there just to build up enough wealth to give their children a fighting chance elsewhere. Thus, many of these patch towns went boom and bust in a very few number of generations. Entire regions rose and fell in a single lifetime, mostly in northeastern and south-central Pennsylvania, southern West Virginia and western Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and, to a lesser extent, southern Illinois. 
What remains are some prosperous and cute small and medium-sized towns, rich in history and unique in traditions, but frequently emoted by the desolation of a hundred unsustainably built rural villages, metaphorical and literal empty husks gutted of their economic purpose, built on a core rotten from the start, and infrastructural poverty. It was a necessary and notable part of American history, for these immigrants lived up to the American dream by giving their children a better life, but given that they propped up the country's then-behemoth manufacturing might on the backs of their own hard labor, it is not an admirable one we should look back on fondly. I encourage you to look at modern low-wage workers in the same light. People with, for reasons often not their own, few other opportunities, being economically exploited by large corporations for the shareholders' benefit. While it was never the poster child of success, in part because it went from nowhere to slightly less nowhere, while paralleling and competing with the LNHR for much the same business, the LNNE was able to hold its own, in part not only because it directly served and was owned by the mines, but it also had a thriving concrete business north of Allentown, which provided a diversified source of traffic. However, for all the LNNE's monopoly on region and purpose, nothing could forestall the decline of anthracite. The railroad ceased operation even while it was still profitable because the loss of coal business was so precipitous and forecastable. It was only the second railroad in history to file for complete abandonment. In 1961, it was no longer operating, and by 1969, what little remained were owned by the competing Central Railroad of New Jersey. The only other major railroad of note in southern New England was another monolith, the Long Island Railroad. They insist on a space between rail and road. While its operation as the busiest commuter railroad system in North America better suits it to a discussion of modern commuter railroads, its legacy as the oldest railroad in North America still operating under its original name earns it a discussion here. Also, variety is the spice of life, and I fear my previous episode discussing the Boston and Albany, Boston and Maine, Boston and Worcester, Boston and Upton, Boston Central, Boston Waterville and Farmington, and Charles River and Boston Lakes Railway may have been a tad monotonous. As aforementioned, the original purpose of the LIRR was to offer service just across the East River from New York City to Greenport, New York, a protected port town on the Long Island's North Fork, whence connections to Boston could be made by ferry to originally Stonington, Connecticut. The advantage of a bridgeless New York to Boston route through Greenport soon became clear, and an extension was built, and partnerships with the New York, Providence, and Boston, and Boston and Providence railroads promptly then sought. This goal led to the peculiar and usually fatal choice of bypassing existing communities in favor of an arrow-straight line across the island to Greenport. Incidentally, though, it was a cheaper and easier route due to fewer hills from the North Shore, even though this usually left stations miles away from and inadequately connected to the city centers for which they were named, a consternation which survives to this day I'm looking at you entire Port Jeff Branch. By 1844, the full line was in operation under the LIRR, now the modern Rankankama branch, with the first branch ever to Hempstead opening in 1839. However, in 1849, the New Haven caught up with this idea, and the route of ferry train, ferry train, became disused in favor of just train. So, faced with a crisis of purpose, management looked homeward at the territory they did serve and, after a decade adrift, started building branches to the actual communities in 1862. 
By the 1860s, the LIRR took a page from their frenemy across the Sound and started buying up other local railroads to gain access to new communities. By the 1870s, it was aggressively building branches to cut off and deny service to putative competitor lines, and in 1876, all competing lines came under the control of the same executives, subsuming literally every other railroad on the island except for a handful of incredibly short industrial loops in Brooklyn and Queens, and of course the trolleys and subways of the region. The most notable acquisitions include the Hicksville and Cold Spring Branch Railroad, now the Port Jefferson Branch, and its first real competition, the Southern Railroad of Long Island, now the Babylon, West Hempstead, and Far Rockaway branches. This consolidation led many things to happen at once. First, duplicative lines were eliminated. Second, debt from the aggressive expansion came due, and the railroad entered into receivership. Third, to ease the financial strain, the LIRR began an advertising campaign to settle Long Island suburbs and develop regular commuters, as well as encourage weekend tourism to the South Shore beaches. Finally, service returned along the route to the modern Atlantic Terminal in Brooklyn with, more notably, so-called rapid transit service extending from Atlantic Avenue to Rockaway, offering reduced fares and frequent service. In 1880, the line exited bankruptcy after acquisition by another Long Island Railroad magnate. The 1895 extension of the Sag Harbor branch and the 1898 extension of the modern Port Washington branch to its titular terminus marked peak mileage for the entire system, bookended by the 1939 abandonments of the Sag Harbor Spur in favor of consolidating all South Fork services to Montauk. In 1900, the Behemoth Pennsylvania Railroad started flexing its power in the New York region. In an effort to compete with the New York Central's extremely convenient Grand Central Terminal at 42nd Street, the Penzi decided to move its passenger operations from Exchange Place in Jersey City straight into the heart of Midtown Manhattan, envisioning a grand station between 32nd and 34th Streets, and a pair of tunnels under the Hudson to provide direct one-seat rides from New York to anywhere on the Penzi system. However, one catch remained. A big city passenger terminal is an enormous operation. Not only does the actual station require require blocks of real estate for a headhouse and many blocks more for platforms and approach tracks, but a major terminal station also requires hundreds of acres for nearby coachyards to store, service, and turn trains. All of this is not exactly a proposition amenable to Midtown Manhattan real estate prices. Enter the Long Island Railroad. With ample space in Queens, directly east of the planned Penn Station, the Pennsy had a plethora of locations for potential coachyards. In 1900, the Pennsy purchased the LIRR. In 1903, work began on two Hudson River tunnels, Penn Station, and four East River tunnels to connect Penn Station with the Long Island Railroad. By 1910, work was complete, and the almost incomprehensibly massive 184-acre, 90-track, 1,078-car capacity Sunnyside Yard was operating. Sunnyside now serves as the major base for Amtrak's East Coast operations, along with New Jersey Transit. For comparison, the next largest North American coach yard I am aware of, Chicago 14th Street Yard, is a mere 43 tracks shared between Amtrak and Metra. Moreover, the Herald Interlocking, which controls access to Sunnyside Yard with the LIRR Main and Port Washington lines and the main line of the Northeast Corridor, is the single busiest stretch of railroad in the Western Hemisphere. It directs almost 800 trains a day, or almost a third of all trains that use the entire Northeast Corridor every workday. 
The interlocking plant just finished a massive modernization as part of the East Side Access project, which will allow, among other improvements, for shoreline Metro North trains to access Penn Station and give service to historically redlined transit deserts of Queens and the Bronx, and, as of this year, for LIRR trains to access Grand Central Terminal, as well as Amtrak Intercity trains, a complete bypass of the congested interlocking plant en route to New England. Originally, Herald Interlocking was built in 1908 as part of the Penzi's Penn Station project, but the LIRR too benefited from the arrangement, as having direct access to Manhattan encouraged a significant boost in the commuting population. This clear purpose led the railroad into another round of consolidation, this time of the feeder trolley lines along the island, partially as insurance against competing subway service, but mostly to shore up its suburban ridership. But the arrival of the private automobile truncated these gains, and most of the trolley lines were out again by the Depression. The Penzi brought in its clout with technology and standardization, heavily signalizing third rail electrifying and grade separating major lines by 1913, and by the 1920s, the LIRR completely looked and operated effectively like any other Penzi division. For all its focus on passenger service, the railroad actually did offer some freight service, although it was always in kowtow to the passenger trains and was significantly more limited in scope, a paradoxical relationship to the majority of American railroad history. As with many other railroads, the end of World War II brought with it automobility and declining ridership, but this was especially harsh on the LIRR given its proximity to Robert Moses, a highway, urban redevelopment, and minority-displacing aficionado whose legacy sits among the likes of fellow Americans of Robert E. Lee, Andrew Johnson, George Patton, J. Edgar Hoover, Ronald Reagan, and Donald J. Pussy-grabbing, Muslim-banning, Mexican-hating, child-separating, COVID-killing, sexual-abusing, capital-insurrecting Trump. However, counterintuitively, the LIRR didn't completely succumb to automobility, in part because its strong suburban service actually comported well with post-war suburban fetishism. Many housing projects for veterans, like the famous and multiplicated Levittown, helped stem the tide of ridership decline. For every Long Islander who bought a car, a New Yorker moved out to Long Island. However, during the post-war era, the Penzi stopped directly supporting and operating the LIRR, and the commuter line started to show its age. An interesting side effect of this, direct operations to Penn Station were terminated, forcing all passengers to change at Jamaica, or as it became known, Change Jamaica. The main transfer station for every one of the LIRR's 15-ish lines except the Port Washington branch. Jamaica is still the major station to this day, with six platforms, ten tracks, connections to the subway and air train automated Bombardier Light Metro to JFK, a yard, and just short of 300 quadrillion turnouts which take an average of eh, 58 minutes of jostling to get through. Or so. The station approaches are also known for being surrounded by enough acres of rusting, crumbling concrete to give a post-Soviet bloc city a run for desolation, deferred maintenance, and decrepitude. By 1954, New York State partially deprivatized the operation and provided nominal grants and tax breaks to bring the commuter tide back up to snuff. This was mostly used on the western lines in Brooklyn, Queens, and Nassau County, and some eastern lines were temporarily replaced with bus service, or bustituted in transit parlance, until the 1980s. By 1965, the railroad was fully absorbed by the state, and a slow march of third rail electrification proceeded eastward to its current terminus, 50 miles from Manhattan. This was accompanied by grade-crossing eliminations, high-level platforms, new passenger cars, and the development of novel push-pull operations in non-electrified territory. 
1987, the West Side Yard, a former surface-level freight yard on the other end of Penn Station, most famous for its entwined history with the Highline Park, opened up, dramatically increasing station throughput and freeing up Sunnyside Yard for the concomitant expansion of service for Amtrak and New Jersey Transit. Among these improvements was in 1994, when the lower-level concourse of Penn Station was remodeled to be, quote, less dreary, unquote. Penn Station is possibly one of the most visible failures of American capitalism. In brief, it was a grand, one might say centrally located, one might say terminal, with enormous vaulted glass ceilings when built in 1910. However, financially struggling, the Penzi sold the air rights and demolished the headhouse in 1963, litting the concourse with the maligned Madison Square Garden above. Of this development, architectural historian Vincent Scully uttered possibly the most famous quote in all of urban planning, if not governance. One entered the city like a god, one scuttles in now like a rat. A symbol of short-sighted profiteering at the expense of societal good, the loss of Penn Station spurred the creation of local historical preservation societies, then later the National Historic Landmarks Program. Only recently, in 2021, was this offensive gaffe rectified. The Farley Building, a post office built across the street from Penn Station by the same architect and meant to match the station's style, was converted, at the urging of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, into the Moynihan Train Hall, with dedicated access for Amtrak and the LIRR. Given the Long Island's anomalous lifelong focus on passenger traffic, freight traffic atrophied with the years. In 1997, freight operations were contracted out to the New York and Atlantic, which continues to run at the behest of passenger schedules. In 2012, an intercity branch line, the Lower Montauk from Jamaica to Long Island City, was fully ceded to the NYNA. This has left a transit desert in Queens, so obvious as to even be visible on the highly stylized New York subway map, and there are current, albeit early, plans to resurrect operations on the Lower Montauk with frequent diesel multiple unit hybrid light rail service, as is seen with some freight passenger shared branches in Texas and California. The most notable recent development for the LIRR is Eastside Access, now termed Grand Central Madison. Partly to offer commuters more convenient uptown access, mostly to relieve Penn Station congestion, and by way of a built but only recently utilized East River Tunnel beneath a subway, Long Island, as of this year, for the first time ever, gained access to Grand Central Terminal. East Side Access is accompanied by a slew of other smaller projects along the railroad to accommodate higher service frequencies, including expansions of distal yards, triple tracking some lines, and a conversion of Brooklyn's Atlantic Terminal Branch into a high-frequency shuttle between Atlantic and Jamaica stations. Of more significant note, however, in 2007, the LIRR hosted the first female railroad president, Helena Williams, an accomplished mover and shaker now in charge of JFK Airport redevelopment. In terms of preservation, two local museums interpret the history of the LIRR, and each has a surviving scrap pile representing one of the two remaining LIRR steam locomotives. However, neither seems to have a viable plan for meaningful tourist operations. Given the vast majority of the LIRR remains in active passenger service, it seems logical to at least announce an intention for mainline fan trip service. Yet neither has indicated intentions of such, an important step, because since both are auspiciously restoring their steam locomotives to full operation, such would have to be equipped with positive train control signaling system compatibility to be cleared for mainline service. In terms of the railroad itself, the LIRR offers quite possibly the last parlor car passenger special in existence, the Montauk Cannonball. 
Departing Jamaica Station Friday evenings and returning Sunday evenings, the Cannonball runs express to the south fork of its titular terminus, offering, well, not quite exactly parlor cars, but at least reservations, at-seat waitstaff, and full bar service. The Cannonball can sometimes even be seen with an actual named drumhead sign hanging off the back, as should always be the case with any proper parlor card train. The vast majority of the LIRR service operates with over a thousand married-pair, single-level cars with third-rail power as electrical multiple units, or EMUs. This means that, instead of a singular, all-powerful locomotive on point, each car pair carries just enough motors with it to make itself propelling. Link all of these cars together, both physically and electronically, and all motors on all cars can be controlled from whichever cab is on the front. Better still, MU systems have redundancy. If a single car's motors fail, the other cars can drag it along without delay until it can be cut out and sent for repairs. Trains range from half to a dozen cars long, reaching an almost incomprehensible quarter mile in length. The more distal routes are served by bi-level cars and diesel locomotives, and about half of the diesel locomotives are actually dual-mode, having third-rail pickup shoes, thus allowing bi-level service right into Queens. The remaining half offer transfers at the ends of the electrified territory. Both the bi-levels and locomotives are, in fact, some of the ugliest things to have ever besmirched twin steel. They, mercifully, have not been replicated elsewhere. Anyway, sometimes the transfer from electric to diesel service is a cross-platform transfer, where the continuing train is across the same platform on another track from the arriving one, but another one of the LIRR's many quirks, sometimes it is a same-platform transfer, wherein the train pulls into the platform, people get off and about-face, then the arriving train pulls forward into a holding track, and the continuing train pulls right up behind it from another holding track to load the temporarily detrained passengers, then leaving the station, bypassing the just-arrived train. It's weird. But for all the umbrage I may take at this truly atypical and sometimes inefficient operation, its history and importance to the region are truly undeniable. The Long Island Railroad is the busiest commuter railroad in North America, with 126 stations, more than 700 miles of track, eight major branches, and peaking at, pre-pandemic, just short of 100 million passenger trips annually. For all of its idiosyncrasies, it is an operation of almost unimaginable magnitude. Except New Jersey Transit, which has 165 stations. Anyway, although not quite a regional player as massive as the New Haven or LIRR, a force not with which to be reckoned is the Providence and Worcester. Tracing its history back to a canal between its titular cities in the 1820s and bankrupted in 1841 by flooding, the P&W first opened its short 45-mile rail line in 1847. It had a rocky beginning with an attempted hostile takeover by a competing railroad, but survived and trundled along as a sub-regional carrier. It also attempted to expand by leasing other lines, but the leases expired. During this time, it expanded its terminal operations in Providence, becoming an even more attractive candidate for acquisition by the multiple railroads looking to connections between Massachusetts Bay and the Long Island Sound with points inland. In 1888, the P&W was finally successfully subsumed by another railroad, the New York, Providence, and Boston, which itself came under control of the New Haven four years later. However, unlike the majority of short lines which fell to the monolith, peculiar conditions of the original lease prevented the New Haven from fully absorbing the PNW, so it maintained its own corporate identity, though still being operated as part of the New Haven system. 
In the 1960s, the woes of the New Haven struggle led shareholders to start a campaign to liberate the PNW. In spite of the rebellious shareholders, the New Haven's lease of the PNW was still passed on to the Penn Central, despite practically every party disliking the arrangement. Finally, in 1973, the PNW was free again. Given this tumultuous corporate history, the PNW is anomalous among railroads in that it really only began expanding after having existed for over a hundred years. Starting with its diminutive mainline, the first acquisition was a B&M branch line extending from Worcester and connecting with the B&M main. Oddly enough, the formation of Conrail landed another expansion in the PNW's lap, one of the lines it originally leased in the 1870s connecting to eastern Connecticut. By 1982, the newly virile PNW succeeded again, acquiring all of Conrail's lines in Rhode Island, and soon many more in Connecticut. The 1990s brought track upgrades and expansion of service into New York City by way of trackage rights over Amtrak's Northeast Corridor, and in 2019, it reopened a branch line, the Weathersfield Secondary. Nowadays, the PNW is owned by Genesee and Wyoming, a short-line conglomerate of 116 railroads worldwide, which started in upstate New York as its titular railroad. Leaving the New England Atlantic coast and fully committing to the opposite corner of New England, on the Lake Champlain coast, we find the Rutland Railroad. Initially chartered in 1843 as the Rutland and Burlington to connect those Vermont communities, it methodically expanded by acquisition and building throughout the region, having branch lines into New York by the 1850s. Uniquely, one of its subsidiaries utilized the first refrigerator car in the United States during this period. In 1867, it earned its final name, the Rutland, but it and its subsidiaries were leased one by one to the Vermont Central Railroad in the early 1870s. Upon exiting VC lease in the 1890s, a turbulent 1901 resulted in four new Rutland railroads being formed as subsidiary railroads were each officially wrapped into the Rutland fold. 1904 almost saw similar upset when the New York Central acquired a majority of stock shares, but soon lost interest and split half its shares with the New Haven in 1911. The 1901's consolidations gave the Rutland multiple connections to Quebec, which it capitalized on by building a route south along the Champlain shore, in addition to a line through central and southeastern Vermont, thereby connecting Burlington with Albany and points south to New York, and competing with the Vermont Central Railroad's similar north-south bridge route. The Rutland's two major passenger trains, the daytime Green Mountain Flyer and the nighttime Mount Royal, used this route through Burlington to connect New York with Montreal. The Rutland's character was almost inextricably Vermontian. Traffic was primarily milk and paper products, with, I don't know, let's add in maple syrup tank cars just for fun, running through the fantastically pastoral landscapes and quaint, minute communities of the Green Mountains. While we're on the subject of Vermont iconography, I must rectify a glaring omission from last time. Even though it has nothing to do with the Rutland, a similarly inescapably railroady Vermont location lies 60 kilometers north of the Rutland's southeasternmost terminus of Bellows Falls, White River Junction. Originally a junction between the Vermont Central and the Boston and Maine, this railroad town is a popular modeling subject for its simple infrastructure but dynamic operations. It was christened a National Historic District in 1980 and survives today as a station stop on Amtrak's Vermonter. Back to the Rutland. Much like the reason it served, it was a poster child of early and mid-20th century small-town depopulation and rural economic decline. It survived most of the Depression, but declared bankruptcy in 1938. In part as a result of local organizing through the Save the Rutland Club, and uniquely presaging state support of rail transportation by many decades, Vermont decided to grant the Rutland tax-free operation for several years to improve its chances of survival. 
However, its, again, largely rural scope caught up with it and resulted in financial struggles much the variety that which many railroads faced in the 1960s and 70s, but starting for the Port Rutland in the 1950s. A debt reorganization from the Rutland Railroad to the Rutland Railway failed to prevent branch line abandonments and the loss of passenger service, both starting in 1953. Multiple worker strikes strained employee relations through the 50s and early 1960s. A full-length abandonment was granted in late 1961, but reversed by federal court in Cleveland in 1963, instead allowing time for the state to steward the line and find independent operators. Unfortunately, some lines were lost in the kerfuffle, but the remaining hundred or so miles between Burlington and New York via Rutland are currently operated by the Vermont Railway. As sad as the story of the Rutland's decline may be, recent news has resurrected its legacy. The Ethan Allen Express, an Amtrak train which ran north along the former New York Central water level route from New York to Albany, then Rutland, has long been a candidate for extension further north along the old Rutland route. After decades of work, the EAT finally returned passenger service to Burlington in 2022 after a 69-year absence. While the Vermonter technically served a suburb of Burlington, Essex, Vermont, that the EAT saw a whopping 50% ridership increase with its extension proves its worth, despite the peculiar reversing maneuver it needs to take out of Rutland. The final legacy of the Rutland is more indirect. In the 1940s, seafood magnate F. Nelson Blout started collecting steam locomotives because trickle-down economics, I guess. By the 1960s, the peak time of steam locomotive retirement and scrapping, he had acquired 35 locomotives and some rolling stock, saving many precious artifacts from destruction, including a Union Pacific big boy. To run his collection, he decided to build a model railroad in 12 inches to the foot scale, calling it the Monadnock Steamtown and Northern Railroad, operating between Keene and Westmoreland in southwestern New Hampshire. In 1964, he founded Steamtown USA to preserve said locomotives and railroadnia after his passing, which tragically occurred three years later in a private plane crash. Anyway, shortly after its founding, Steamtown moved the collection across the Connecticut River to an old Rutland roundhouse in Bellows Falls, Vermont, and entered into an agreement with the Green Mountain Railroad to run excursions a dozen or so miles northwest to Chester, Vermont, along the old Rutland Railroad right-of-way. This lasted for over a decade until disputes with the host railroad over maintenance and declining visitorship from the increasing demographic shift to big cities, all which lay inaccessibly far from the Vermont location, made it clear a new location had to be sought. In 1983, the last excursion was run in Vermont, and Scranton, Pennsylvania pledged to fund the movement of the entire collection right next to downtown to a large roundhouse and rail yard built by the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad. Unfortunately, the first Scranton excursion season in 1987 was a complete flop, seeing as the scenic train ride through the pastoral Vermont countryside had been replaced by an up-close and personal view of the world's largest scrapyard. Steamtown USA fumbled along for a few more years without excursions until the National Park Service, recognizing the value of the collection, took over the property in 1995 and began a major program of equipment and physical plant rehabilitation to turn it into Steamtown National Historic Site, a gem of historic preservation. Since I have, for the better part of the past hour, blurred the lines of New England and have already somewhat explored southern New York and northern New Jersey, let's complete the other tri-state area and look at another notable northern mid-Atlantic railroad, the Delaware and Hudson. As I've mentioned in a past episode, the D&H is one of the oldest railroads and the country's oldest transportation company, originating in 1823. The concept was simple. In the early years of the United States, New England needed materials for construction and heat for foundries and home heating, and the frontier had been pushed back to the woods and coalfields of the Pocono and Catskill Mountains in the upper mid-Atlantic. 
With time, the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania was found to have the largest deposits of anthracite coal, and the towns of, south to north, Nanticoke, Wilkes-Barre, Pittston, Scranton, Carbondale, and farther upstream, Binghamton, popped up along the north branch of the Susquehanna River as it wove through the mountains to host these rapidly growing industries. The Susquehanna ran north-ish to south-ish, plus or minus many squiggles, so an adjacent canal covered the transportation south to Harrisburg, Baltimore, and D.C., but New England wanted in on the Black Diamond trade, and that necessitated an east-west canal. Enter the D&H, connecting said timber and coal fields with the transportation arteries of the Delaware and Hudson Rivers, hence the name. The canal, opening after three years of construction in 1828, connected the Hudson River near Kingston, crossing the New York to Port Jervis, then following the New York side of the Delaware to Lackawaxon, Pennsylvania, whereby it crossed the Delaware on a canal aqueduct and headed more or less west to Honesdale. However, between Honesdale and Carbondale was inconveniently hillier than could be practically surpassed by canal. Thusly was built the Delaware and Hudson Gravity Railroad. The Storbridge Lion steam locomotive arrived in 1829 to plug the gaps impassable by cable haul and subsequent gravity, and the railroad slowly extended south through the Wyoming Valley from the 1840s as more coal mines were opened, reaching Scranton in 1863. During this time, a railroad boom struck the Wyoming Valley, and the DNH Railroad was expanded more and slowly supplanted its host canal. In the 1870s, the DNH leased and later acquired the Albany and Susquehanna Railroad north of Binghamton and northeast to Albany through the Catskills, as well as several other railroads in the Albany, Schenectady, and Rensselaer areas, stretching as far east as Rutland, Vermont for connections to New England, and as far north as the Quebec border for connections to Montreal. In 1886, it acquired a railroad southwest through the Wyoming Valley to Wilkes-Barre. In 1891, the canal shipped its last freight, was sold, and was later drained in 1898. Curiously, rather than use its own canal's towpath as railroad right-of-way for east-west traffic, the DNH shifted its operational focus to the northeast-southwest route it had amassed and expanded aggressively in northern New York amongst the Adirondacks and ultimately forming a route into Montreal via trackage rights on the Grand Trunk, though the canal's right-of-way would later be reused by a branch of the New York, Ontario, and Western Railroad. Through the 1930s, with changing traffic patterns, the DNH began operating more as a bridge line, carrying through traffic from one railroad to another. This was also reflected in its passenger trains. While Albany to Binghamton trains always played a major role in its corporate identity, its flagship passenger routes primarily ran from connections in Albany northward along the west shore of Lake Champlain to Montreal. These New York to Montreal trains, the Laurentian and Montreal Limited, survived clear on through to Amtrak and exist today as the Adirondack. Unfortunately, the DNH's routing wasn't kind to it. As railroads around it were consolidated through the 1960s, the DNR's bridge traffic service became less and less necessary. Further still, its only major online traffic, coal, timber, and small-town way freight, were all three in perilous decline through the 1970s. Astonishingly, despite its poor physical condition and multiple different parent railroad ownerships, it managed to hang on. Unexpectedly, the DNH was left out of Conrail, which actually proved prescient, as it then acquired several rail lines spun off by Conrail in the 1980s, including an alternate, flatter route from Binghamton to Scranton, and a former Pennsylvania railroad line stretching very far southwesterly to Sunbury, Pennsylvania, increasing its route mileage substantially, although how much of those miles were usable due to poor track conditions is still debatable. In 1984, Gulford Transportation purchased the DNH, attempting to expand out of New England. Attempts to revive traffic didn't work, and the railroad declared bankruptcy in 1988, surprisingly late, all things considered. 
The line was made aboard of the state and operated on contract from the New York, Susquehanna, and Western until it was bought by the Canadian Pacific in 1991. Ironically, with the purchase by CP, the line's characteristic bridge traffic returned as it now was one of CP's multiple and growing southwestern connections to the American market. After a few false starts, the line entered a period of modernization, and, ultimately proving its purpose, the line between Albany and Sunbury was purchased by Norfolk Southern in 2014. The Delaware and Hudson, though a peculiar operation for much of its lifetime, is by some considered peak railroading. It made the best of its situation, evolved with the times, and maintained a strong identity with its stylish paint scheme of light gray, sapphire blue, and gold trim. It was an uncommon cross between forward-thinking and ultimately modern bridge traffic and remote small-town door-to-door service, so-called retail railroading, much like the New Haven. It was never the healthiest railroad, but it wasn't the unhealthiest either, and its surprisingly late bankruptcy is a testament to that, in an era when many of its surrounding competitors declared bankruptcy two decades before. Its quaint setting, unique locomotives, and variety of operations make it, though not the most popular modeling subject, definitely by some an understandably beloved one. As we have now finished with the major players and regionals, it's time to focus on the short lines. Even though most southern New England short lines were gobbled up by the New Haven, there are a few notable pikes worth mentioning. One is the Branford Steam Railroad. Initially constructed as a short horse tramway outside of its eponymous town, the railroad acquired a steam locomotive in 1903 and changed its name to distinguish it from the Branford Electric Railway, a nearby trolley line which actually survives to this day as a museum. Shortly thereafter, the railroad expanded north to serve quarries and southward to give them access to a pier on the Long Island Sound. From the 1920s to the 1990s, its ownership changed multiple times, but operations barely ever did. It diesel in 1951 in the same spirit as many ultra-New England short lines, a cute and diminutive locomotive with a center cab and medium-low sloped hoods on either end. To this day, the railroad survives connecting its quarries to ocean barges. Back in upstate New York, we have the Fonda, Johnstown, and Gloversville. Incorporated in 1867 and opening in 1870, the FJ&G ran, creatively, between the mainline connection with the New York Central in Fonda, through Johnstown and going 14 kilometers north to Gloversville, so named because it's literal hundreds of glove-making companies. Over time, it pushed northwards through subsidiary companies, extending to Northville on the Sacandaga River, 40-odd clicks north of Fonda. These lakeside accommodations gave the Petite Pike a degree of notoriety, and the era's growing class of vacationers made use of the area's cabins, tent sites, amusement parks, and prestigious Adirondack Inn. Additionally, more adventurous travelers used the FJNG as a jumping-off point for the deep Adirondacks, detraining in Northville and stagecoaching further north. Additional expansion included multiple routes between Fonda and Gloversville, as well as an eastward expansion to Schenectady, bringing the FJNG system to over 200 kilometers in size. To my understanding, the route from Fonda to Schenectady was at some point electrified for trolley commuter service. Unfortunately, the damming of the Sacandaga River in the 1930s to create the Great Sacandaga Lake resulted in a loss of the line from Gloversville to Northville. Given its mostly recreational bent, passenger service flatlined after World War I and declined through the Depression. To stem losses, and in keeping with the 1920s push for nascent streamlining, management decided to acquire a small fleet of gas-powered self-propelled railcars to re-equip the non-electrified branches with sleek passenger service. 
This was followed in the early 1930s by a similar refresh of the electric branch rolling stock with so-called bullet cars, extremely unique streamlined pseudo-trolleys which have only ever been used on the FJNG and the much more well-known Norristown High Speed Line in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, growing auto dependency, the depression, and the paradoxical but concomitant decrease in glove buying because more people were spending time in cars and not the outdoors resulted in a 1-2-3 punch to the FJNG. Despite the new equipment, passenger ridership suffered an irreconcilable decline through the depression and passenger service was abandoned in 1938. Freight service followed too, albeit the collapse of the leather industry was slower, but eventually the entire line was sold to a corporation in 1974 and abandoned completely in 1984. Since then, some of the rights-of-way have been converted into a multi-use trail, but the rest remains in a state of suspended animation awaiting its fate. Returning a bit more to our original objective of southern New England, we encounter in the Catskills another sub-regional, the Ulster and Delaware, the UND, or the amusingly nicknamed Up and Down. In the late 19th century, the Catskills were becoming a playground of the vacationing New York elite, in part because of their stark scenic beauty, but largely because of their proximity to the New York area. Many seeking a relief from the cityest of cities, hustle and bustle, would travel up the Hudson, initially by steamboat and later by rail, but the trip up the Catskills was marred by remote and rutted dirt roads. A peculiar initial solution inland was the Delaware and Hudson's Canal near Kingston, but the shine of canal boats soon wore thin and a more luxurious option was sought. In 1866, a member of the Cornell family sought a solution by chartering a railroad into the towns and resorts of the Catskills. By the 1870s, the railroad extended from the shores of the Hudson River near Kingston to the stagecoach center of Phoenicia, whereby many travelers would backtrack to some truly spectacular resorts sitting atop the Hudson River bluffs. While the Rondout and Oswego Railroad, as it was then called, was nowhere near its intended destination on the Lake Ontario shore, it did serve a lively freight business. Inbound coal to the homes and hotels came from the Delaware and Hudson, and outbound agricultural goods emanated from the many online pastoral villages. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough to compensate for an overextension of debt, and the railroad was bankrupt and reorganized three times until the Ulster and Delaware emerged in 1875. During this time, Thomas Cornell got the idea that passenger traffic to the resorts would be benefited by an additional railroad from Phoenicia to the resort's front doors. Imbued with the narrow-gauge fervor of the day, the Stony Clove and Catskill Mountain Railroad was built at meterish gauge. However, as was often the plight of narrow-gauge railroads, break-bulk cargo was a perpetual nuisance, and a Ramsey gauge-changing apparatus was soon installed in Phoenicia, allowing standard-gauge trucks to be exchanged for narrow-gauge trucks on the same freight car, allowing delivery of the same freight car without break-bulk cargo to its final destination. Though far from a perfect system, it allowed the railroads to coexist for longer than they ought to have until conversion to standard gauge in 1899. As is oftenly the case with passenger-centric railroads, peak service came in the 19-teens, and leisure service got a twice-fold curse of automobility in the 1920s and decreased leisure travel in the 1930s. The route managed to hang on, but was acquired by the New York Central in the 1950s and lost passenger service soon thereafter. Since then, the line has suffered an awful decline. Portions still exist, operated by several tourist railroads, but a large segment between Kingston and Phoenicia was lost to the Catskill Scenic Trail in 2011, in part due to a rail bridge washout. Remaining portions of the line are operated by the Kingston Trolling Museum, the Catskill Mountain Railroad, and the inversely named Delaware and Ulster Railroad. 
Legal disputes remain between the railroad and bicycle trail interests, which, as both personally a railroader and bicycle trail enthusiast, I find preposterous. I have ridden on multiple rights-of-way shared between both rail and trail, not the least of which being the Great Allegheny Passage between Frostburg and Cumberland, Maryland, which thoroughly demonstrate that bicyclists need not be so invasive a phenomenon as to occlude a railroad. If you have a battle in your local community between trains, bicycles, and pedestrians, you're doing it wrong. The real enemy is the car. Steal lane miles from them first. A railroad almost parallel to the UND's narrow-gauge subsidiary, the SCNC, was the Catskill and Tannersville Railway. Initially an extension of the UND's then-Catterskill Railroad, the SCNC's extension to the hotels and subsequent standard-gauge conversion in 1899 put it and the CNT in direct competition, with stations sometimes being mere blocks apart. So, to distinguish itself, the CNT operated in partnership with the Otis Elevating Railway, offering a more direct route literally up the face of the Catskill Mountains. The Otis Elevating Railway was a 2,130-meter cable funicular built by the Otis Elevating Company next to the Catskill Mountain House in 1892 to ascend the so-called Great Wall of Manitou. Each balanced cable haulage consisted of a 75-person passenger car and a small baggage car on the downhill side. Uniquely, the Catterskill and Tannersville interchanged freight traffic with the Otis Elevating Railway, a single freight car at a time being coupled below the baggage car, itself being delivered down the mountain to a narrow-gauge counterpart, the Catskill Mountain Railroad, which completed the trek from the base of the funicular to the Hudson River proper. This area of the Catskills was an extremely popular vacation destination for New Yorkers, being a short ferry and later train ride up the Hudson River Valley, and featuring the scenic mountains, stark beauty of Catterskill Falls, and numerous luxurious resorts, one of which claimed to have the longest bar in the world, so long that it spanned two different counties with different liquor legislation, requiring one half of the bar to shut down at an earlier time of night than the other. The popularity of these resorts and their mountainous grandeur even helped to establish the Hudson River School of Landscape Artists. But familiar market forces were at play, and the duplication of rail mileage really didn't help either, so in 1918, all three railroads went bankrupt and were scrapped in 1919. Interestingly, the Otis Elevating Railway's coaches survived and were sold to the Lookout Mountain Incline in Chattanooga, Tennessee. that with this episode I have resurrected your faith and my ability to make any episode with literally any production value whatsoever, and also inform you of the history of railroads in southern New England, and also northeastern mid-Atlantic states. If you want to join our currently dead Facebook community, you can, but I gave up on social media over the pandemic and it probably won't be very interesting. Instead, if you have a question or comment, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is on the advertised, departing from the station at the time as in the published schedules. Thank you so very much for listening and for your patience. Happy modeling.
Also, variety is the spice of life, and I fear my previous episode discussing the Boston and Albany, Boston and Maine, Boston and Worcester, Boston and Upton, Boston Central, Boston Waterville and Farmington, and Charles River and Boston Lakes Railway may have been a tad monotonous. <laughs> Ugh. <sighs>